it begins with, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called, what? Life. Um, that is the song, Let's Go Crazy, if you're interested. And I really enjoy that song. But I want to ask you a question. Why are you here? What brought you here today? No doubt there's likely a mix of reasons. Some of you, just joy. This is the highlight of your week. Others of you came by invitation. You came because someone invited you. Some of you are curious. You're trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus and the church and where you fit into it all. Some of you, no doubt, this is just culture. This is just what we do. We've done this all our whole lives. Others of you, this is community. This is where you get to see your friends and hang out with those who are like-minded. Some of the kids, you came because your parents told you you had to. Some of you, some of us, it's our job. <laughs> and as, you know, as a, whatever reason that is, I, I just want you to think about why am I here? What is the purpose of our gathering? What are we doing here? You know, as a staff, each week we gather, each week we have a, 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 a weekly staff meeting, and what we do is we preview the, the upcoming ministries of the week and the next, couple, or the next couple weeks, but we also look back about how, what went on the past week, and we think about our, the ministry uh, that the Lord has uh, done through us. And one of the questions that we have to keep in mind and re remember all the time is when we're evaluating even services like this one is, what are we doing? What is our purpose? Why do we open our doors week after week? Why do we gather? And like the reasons I just mentioned aren't bad reasons. But they're not primary reasons for why we gather either. We gather week after week, year after year, as people called out by God to unite our voices, our hearts, our minds, and our lives in worship. We are here to worship. That is our purpose and focus. That's why we call it our corporate worship gathering. So this summer, as we have just finished 1 Peter, we actually as a church want to head over to the Old Testament and, and look at the book of Psalms and, and pick out a, a handful of songs and look at them as a, as a church to think about what it, it teaches us about authentic worship, particularly corporate worship, worshiping together as God's people. And among other things, the Psalms are the songbook of God's people. Eugene Peterson, who, who I love so much of his writing, says about the book of Psalms, he says, quote, We often imagine the Psalms as private compositions prayed by a shepherd, a traveler, or a fugitive. But close study shows all of them to be corporate. All were prayed by the community and in the community. So with that said, the, the Psalms actually have a lot to teach, teach us about worshiping God. And we want to do our best to learn from these ancient lessons and apply them to our lives and our gathering. So we're calling this series a Gathered, Worshiping as God's pe People in Spirit and in Truth. And, and together, we hope that this series would, would be an encouragement, will strengthen you and us, and aid us in our worship 
as we seek to do so both individually as well as corporately. And so to begin this series, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 145, which is the passage that Trisha just read for us. So if your Bible open, turn it uh, open there, and we'll work through that. But as we do, would you, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for giving us the church, your people gathered together. We ask now that even as we open your word, that you would guide our study and help us, we pray. As we consider it, think about how it connects to our lives and apply it, both our individual lives and our life together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 45 is a, uh, you might have a little note, it's an acrostic poem. That means that each, each kind of stanza is, uh, begins with a, a, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's kind of a, uh, like an ABCs, and it follows that, that listing, and it, each one begins with the, the appropriate letter in alphabetical order, which was a, an ancient practice, and, and then also just a way to help people memorize, because these were, these were, again, songs that people would sing. And this is a celebratory psalm written by David, and it shows us the heart and substance of worshiping God, both in spirit and in truth. This psalm paints a picture of authentic worship and how it, and it speaks to us as, as God's people in our individual lives as well as our lives together. So, so look at just the first two verses. It's a psalm of David again, and uh, he says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David says that he will lift up, that's an extol, he will, he will bless, he will adore with praise the Lord, Yahweh, the God of scriptures, every day. And it's, you see, that his praise was not relegated to one, like an hour and a half on a day of a week. It was, it was an ongoing process. It was an everyday thing. So the first thing we should see here is that worship is an ongoing, everyday practice. If we think about worship as just a service, a singing, or like an emotional feeling, worshiping every day all the time sounds like a lot. I used to think about, you know, when, 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 I, when I was a kid, I thought like heaven would be like just harps and clouds. And it's like, I don't know if I'm interested. That's kind of boring. If this is just worship, can we be here all the time? No. But worship is not just the service, it's not just the singing. So, so we often, just so you know, we often say, instead of calling our singing worship, we often call it worship in song. It's an aspect of our worship. Singing is not just, worship is not just singing. It's something much deeper. In fact, worship is something that we do constantly, whether we know it or not. I'm not sure if you know who David Foster Wallace is. Does anyone know that name? Two. Great. He's not a Christian writer, but one who is, as I've read his work, some of his work, he has great insight into the human heart. In one of his most famous things, there's actually a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005, and he said this to the graduating class. He said, quote, There is actually no such thing as atheism. 
There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Worship is the default setting for us. Humans are hardwired to worship. The word worship is actually derived from the old English word, like worth-sip, I guess you would say it. It's meant to ascri- it means to ascribe value or worth to something. So in this way, we can see that we're all worshipers all the time. Someone or something has your heart, your mind, your focus, your attention, your desires, your affections all the time. We are continuously, continuously outpouring ourselves towards someone or something all the time. A theologian, Harold Best, says, at this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. Period. Maybe my favorite way this has been put, and you can probably guess who I'm going to quote, is by Bob Dylan. In his famous song, Gotta Serve Somebody, he says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. David, the Israelites, you, me, we are worshipers. We are worshiping. The question for us is, what or who are you worshiping? Worship is not an event. It's a way of life. It's, a, it's how we're pouring out our lives. So worship is an ongoing and everyday practice. We see that in David. And his is directed towards the Lord, and this is why. He says, and this is the second thing we see, that authentic worship is worship that is centered on who God is and what he has done. It is his greatness, his character, his beauty, his power, his works. Look at verse 3. It is filled with superlatives. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness, David is saying, is it's to such a degree that we can't even get to the very bottom of it. But even just contemplating it, it's like blowing categories in his mind. It is unsearchable. His greatness is infinite. He's of infinite worth. This reality, therefore, shapes all of David's life. He doesn't wait for a special time of the week or wait until he's in a particular location to worship. The Lord, rather, it is the constant heartbeat of his life because he is in awe of who God is. In 2010, Kirsten and I, my wife and I, were living in Jamaica, and friends of ours took us to a track meet where Usain Bolt was running. Uh, If you know who Usain Bolt is, you know the fastest man in the world. So he, in 2008, he had already uh, beat the Olympic record in 2012. He was going to crush his, his earlier record. Here's the thing. When Usain Bolt says that he's the fastest man in the world, he's, he's not boasting. He's stating a fact. He is the fastest human recorded. 
That is what David is writing about the Lord. No one is more worthy of our worship. No one is more worthy of our praise, our desire, our affections. He is, his greatness is greater than all the others. Everyone's worth pales in comparison to who God is. And then even though God's greatness is unsearchable, we can't get to the bottom, we can't name them all, David begins to list why God is so great. And beginning in verse 4 and, and onward, we see the ways that David talks about the mighty acts of God. Listen to the adjectives he uses in verses four, uh, uh, in the following verses. He says that your acts are mighty. Your works are wondrous. Your deeds are awesome. Culturally, we like definitely overuse the word awesome. This is, this is the, all these works are worthy of praise. And if we think about what are some of the works that David, as he's writing this song, what is he thinking about? I think creation is probably certainly first on the list. If you were to turn back over to Psalm 95, we see this in verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. God holds the earth in his hand. There's something to that little kid song, you know. It's got the whole world in its hand. The heights of the mountain are his also. And the sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. I had a professor one time uh, in seminary say that he would go to the beach with his daughters. And he would go out and he would say, all right, girls, watch me. And he would try to, he'd scoop up the water and go, did the level go down at all? Was any of it displaced? Not a bit. God holds the oceans in his hands. He formed their boundary. Creation screams of God's mighty power. And that he holds all things together with the power of his word. David likely also thinks about the establishment of his people. Of God choosing Abraham to call out of her and into this pilgrimage where God will build a nation. The man was 75 years old and couldn't have kids. And God goes, I'll use that one. Even if you were here last week, Ramney was talking about the story of Joseph. Even as, as, as David is looking back, he's seeing God's providential hand directing all things, coordinating all things for his glory, for his purposes, for his way. No doubt then he's also thinking about God saving Israel from the Egyptians. About how through mighty signs and wonders, he brings them out with the, the, the plagues and then rescues them and then sustains them in the wilderness and then brings them safely into the promised land. How he establishes his, his covenant with his people, abides with them, guides them. Think about even in David's life. David's, the defeat of Goliath, the establishment of his royal family. If you think about Saul was king, he rejects God, God rejects him. 
David should not have even been the family to go, the son in the family. He wasn't the oldest, he wasn't the strongest. But God looks on the heart, not on the outside. And then then God, through David and, and the soldiers that he brings around him, brought peace to Israel, establishes Israel on a personal level. God rescued David from his enemies, whether it be Saul or even his own son. God's mighty acts also extended to his in mercy and grace toward David when David sinned with Bathsheba, killing her, her husband, Uriah. David is overwhelmed by the majestic, awesome deeds of God. The response then is worship, praise, outpouring of affection and desires toward him. Not just because they're displays of power, but also because they say something about who he is. God's works tell of his nature. If we were to read, continue to read, we can pick out some of these uh, characteristics of God. That he's great, that he's righteous, that he's holy and just, that he's gracious and merciful steadfast in his love. You know, we read only part of Psalm 136. If we were to keep reading, we would have said, for his steadfast love endures forever a lot more times. You know why we read that? It's because we're so prone to forget it. And there's a reason that repetition is saying, this is who God is. His steadfast love endures forever. He is faithful, he is kind, and he is abundant in goodness. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren is, is a, a writer. She wrote a book called Prayer in the Night. I, I've actually given it out to a couple people here. She tells a story of her daughter when she was young. And she had gotten into the habit of asking the same question over and over. Particularly one of the questions that she was constantly asking her parents was, what's your name? My, my kids have done that too to me. Daddy, what's your name? Daddy. No, no, what's your name? Jonathan, what's your full name? Jonathan Paul Anzardo. They'll even sometimes introduce me, so this is Jonathan Paul Anzardo. But they would ask over and over. They just wanted to hear me say it over and over again. Or Kirsten the same way. And this is what Tish's daughter did. Uh, after that, the daughter got stuck on another question is, do you love me? And she would ask her, her mom and dad, do you love me? Daddy, do you love me? And it's not that they didn't say it. She would, uh, Tish actually says, sometimes she would go, I know you've already told me, but will you tell me, do you love me? She asked over and over again because she was quick to forget and to doubt it. And in the, in the book, she makes this point, which I, this section of the book is worth the price of the book itself. She says that these are questions we ask God over and over again. We're asking him, what's your name? In other words, what are you like? Can I trust you? Are you good? And asking, do you love me? She writes, do you love me? Will you tell me again? It's hard for me to remember and to believe. Are you a God of love? And is that love for me? Even here, even now. This psalm celebrates the kindness and goodness of God to comfort with answers that he has shown us what he is like 
He has shown his, his steadfast love. He has shown us his, his very character, his nature, time and time and time again. And David reflecting on the nature of God and the steadfast love of God as he thinks about over, not just in his lifetime, but in over generations. And then in the moment by moment, minutes, he sees God's character shine through, the mighty deeds at work. And that's why David in verse 8 and 9 restates one of the most incredible descriptions God reveals of himself. In verses 8 and 9, he says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. For those that know a little bit more about the Old Testament, that may pick your ears up. God actually says this about himself back in Exodus. When, when he has brought them out of Israel, out of Egypt, he, they are in the wilderness, they're at Mount Sinai, Moses has been meeting with the Lord and receiving the covenant, the law, the instructions from God about how, how as he's rescued them, they, they've experienced God's grace, this is how they would live among God's people now. Yet even as Moses is receiving God's instructions for his people, the Israelites turn away. They turn back and make a golden calf. They return and start worshiping and praying to the gods of Egypt. Even in the midst of, their, of God's redeeming act, they forgot that quickly. Friends, you and I do too. Moses then smashes the, the covenant, the, 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 the commandments when he comes down, you know, not like in the uh, Charlton Heston anger, but that they had broken the covenant. The, 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 the Israel's infidelity, their idolatry, worshiping a false or lesser God broke the covenant. They had been unfaithful. Moses then pleads with God to forgive the people. And God does. He shows them mercy. And he restores the covenant. And in this encounter, Moses asked the Lord, I want to see your glory. He wants to see the glory of the Lord. And God honors this request and passes by Moses. And this is what we read in Exodus. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 through 8, or 6 through 7. Verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. As David, no doubt, is thinking about who God is, he's reminded. It's interesting that God's glory, he shows him as this, it's his name. It's who he is. It's his goodness manifest in this way. 
that he is both gracious and merciful and righteous. And David is overwhelmed and it causes his heart to celebrate in the same way it did to Moses in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. David, as he meditates and thinks about, remembers and considers all that God has done, he's led back to the scene with the Lord and Moses. It's almost like, as, I, as I've studied this, it's almost like David is saying, this is who you said you were, and you have proved it time and time and time again. You have shown your grace. You have shown your mercy. You have shown your steadfast love to me. You have been faithful even when I wasn't. This is the story of Scripture. We've been singing about it too. In the songs, How Great Is Our God, All Creatures of Our God and King, that God made all things out of an overflow of his own generosity and love. He didn't need to create any, anything, but he did. He created the world and it was good. And he, and he put he, man and woman, even as we read in our, our, our statement of faith, that, that man and woman are made in his image and put into a garden. Theologians often talk about the garden as a temple. And what's interesting about temples is they have statues of the God in there. God didn't put any statues of gods in there. Who did he put? A man and a woman made in God's image. Because God dwelled in the midst and his people. And God, in his, it, he continuously outpours of his own glory, of his own goodness, of his own love. Men then were to reflect that back to him. But it didn't stay that way. Many of you know we, we exchanged the glory and the goodness of God for a lie. Adam and Eve took fruit and ate it, thinking that they could become like God. They wanted the self-glory, not to give glory back to God. And it broke everything. It broke the sanctuary. It broke the relationship between God and, 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 and them, and then them to one another. But what's interesting is that they were made to worship to, 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 to pour out their hearts. That continues, but now it's broken because of sin. That desire to, to pour out all of our affections towards something doesn't go away. But it's detached and disconnected from the God that made us. But again, even as we've, we, we've heard and sung about already, God didn't forsake us. Even in the garden, God didn't crush them there. He actually clothed them and then sent them out with a promise. God pursued even in their unfaithfulness, even in their worship of false things. God pursued. He didn't forsake them in the garden. He didn't forsake his people in Egypt. He didn't forsake them in the wilderness. He didn't forsake them against the Philistine army. He didn't, vers he didn't forsake them against their, our own rebellious hearts. God has pursued us. And, and the ultimate expression of this pursuit is in the sending of Jesus. God made flesh who came in pursuit of us to bring us back to God. He bore the agony of our sin on the cross that we might once again be connected to the God who made us. 
that our hearts might be rightly oriented in worship. Friends, this is our story. The Lord is still at work in this way, in our world, in his people, in you and in me. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've, you've, you've looked to Christ, then you have experienced the gracious, merciful, kind hand of the Lord. Listen to this in verse 10. I'm sorry, um, verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and is kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. We have seen the handiwork of God. We have experienced personally and then corporately, his grace and his mercy. His goodness, we are witnesses to in our, all, in our lives. Let me ask you, where have you seen God at work? When have you been bowed down and falling, and the Lord showed kindness to you and upheld you? Like, I know of many stories in here and many of you can testify to the Lord's kindness in this way. Whether it's been through a season of suffering and grief, a time of depression or pain, you have experienced the faithfulness of the Lord. I'll tell you a little bit about mine. In 2020, I was completely burned out. The wheels were coming off. I was contemplating leaving ministry altogether. Some of you know that, although I know most of you probably don't. But I want to be honest. I was depressed. My soul hurt. It was weary. Yet, it was the Lord who comforted the Lord who lifted me up, not really by anything that I've done in my own strength. It was his kindness. Through his word and his spirit, one of the things, he, he helped me to repent of worshiping things that are not him, to turn away from things that I was pursuing, which was burning me out. And to see in Christ the fullness that I already had. He also gave the gift of counselors. Some therapists, but also brothers like Eric Yang and Justin Lee who were patient and encouraged me. The Lord has been patient and persistent to care for me. What's your story? We, we, we see the Lord's provision in our lives. The Lord has opened his hand toward us, both as a church and as individuals. Over 13 years, the Lord has provided time and time again for us as a church. 
Even as we look to the, the future, there's, we don't know what's going to happen as we look to another season of transition, but we know this, the Lord cares for us. As individuals, we can go through this room and I, I, I guarantee I can hear how God has provided work for you, how he has provided housing for you, has he provided friends for you, mates for you, and even material needs. Even when they've been taken by water or fire or something else or just time. The Lord has provided. And the most beautiful ways that the Lord has shown himself merciful and gracious is in our salvation. In sin, we willfully worship that which cannot save us. David Foster Wallace, actually in that that talk, he actually says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what? To worship, He goes on to say, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or a spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Commenting on this passage, uh, Tim Keller often quoted Wallace, and he says, Wallace by, was no means a religious person, but he understood that everyone worships. Everyone trusts in salvation, in, in something for their salvation. Everyone bases their lives on something that requires faith. What I didn't tell you is a couple years after giving that speech, David Foster Wallace killed himself. And this non-religious man's parting words to us are pretty terrifying. Something will eat you alive. We were made to be connected to the source of life. That broken, we, we are left to try to find it on our own. And we will not. Our sin has separated us from our God. The longings of our hearts drive us to seek from others, from ourselves, or the world around us, that which can only come from God. And in the end, we find death, not life. It's the rat race. It's the thing that eats us alive. There's never enoughness to fill our soul. Yet God did not leave us alone. He has come to us in mercy. He hears our cries and he saves us. Like the Israelites crying out for rescue in their enslaved suffering in Egypt, David cries for mercy after committing adultery and murder. The Lord is gracious and forgives. Sin had made a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is our own story too, one of our fall and of our redemption. This is the story of our salvation. It is God's mercy and his grace, his kindness and his faithfulness to his promises that we get to partake in now through Christ. He has established his kingdom. That's, that's why all the saints give his place because he's brought us into his kingdom, not by our own works, but by his kindness. And his kingdom is not bound by borders or time like David's was, but it's an eternal kingdom. And all who look to Christ are welcomed in and are partakers of it. In his kindness, those who trust in Christ are made co-heirs of this kingdom. You know, people often talk about, uh, if you've been around churches, uh, worship wars or wars of worship. Have you ever heard that, that phrase? It's about, should we have drums at church or an organ? Should we, should we dress down or should we dress up? The real war of worship is not what music we sing. It is about who are you worshiping. 
Verse 19 and 20 tell us the real war of worship. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. That is, all who turn to Christ in faith, trusting in him. That is who God saves, but the wicked he will destroy. If you continue to worship that which will not save, it will eat you alive. There is no peace there. There is no fullness. There's only the chasing of, is this going to be enough? And it never is. Just think about your own lives. Where have you been chasing? What have you been worshiping? Whether it's the approval of others, whether it's the comfort of not having uh, distress or suffering in your life, whether it's been you know, money or fame or, or alcohol or drugs, whatever it might be, it's with, you're, you're pursuing a relationship, you're pursuing beauty, you want fame. I sometimes read about like, social media influencers. It kind of, I don't understand it at all. Like kids in our... Kids that go to school with my kids, when they, what do you want to be when you grow up? A lot of them are putting like YouTube in, YouTuber. What? <laughs> I often read stories of those that try to be influencers but fail. They're $50,000 in debt because they had to travel to stupid locations to almost fall off a cliff to get a picture. They have to wear fancy clothes, try to get sponsorship deals. Notice me, notice me, notice me. Even the ones that are, have millions of people that follow them on a daily basis. I've heard them in the interviews say, the need to post over and over and over and over again. It's eating them alive. It's not liberating. It's consuming. God is welcoming us into, back into his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That is what Christ has accomplished for his people. To reject it is to reject the greatness, the mercy, the grace, the steadfast love of the Lord. In response to God's actions and character, David worships. Authentic worship, then, is worship to God through Christ. It is a celebratory response to what God has done, is doing, and promises to do. All of us have failed in our worship. We have not been single-heartedly devoted, pouring out our hearts as a reflection of God's glory and grace in our lives. We have failed in that way. Christ didn't. And as turning to him, he, he gives us his perfection that, that we are actually our our worship then is made perfect as we are in Christ. So even when we falter, even when we fail, we can still worship honestly, continuously pouring out our heart because Christ is our perfect representative. He is, we are united to him. Our lives are connected. Authentic worship is worship to God through Christ. It is a response to who he is and what he has done. And then lastly, Authentic worship is individual and corporate. Worship starts out in our personal lives, in our own heart. Even as David is writing this song, he says in verse 5, 
On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. In his own life, he is chewing on, he's, he's thinking about the, the works of the Lord, he, both in scripture and his own life. He spends time with the Lord, not just checking his spiritual box, but communing with the Lord on a, on a regular basis. And he's allowing these realities to shape the rest of his life. In other words, as he meditates, it, it is so orienting his life towards God that, that all that he does is reflective of, of his worship of God. That the way he worked, the way he interacted with the others, the way he went about his day. So worship is not just about a quiet time or listening to Christian songs in your car or just being emotional and, and to service. It's about the outpouring of our heart and all that we do and all that we are. And this is why Paul can write, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I've always thought, like, that's a weird thing to say. How do I drink to the glory of God? One, it's, it's, it's recognizing my, my life is in line with God. Seeing our story, our lives as enfolded in his story through Christ. Paul, in Romans chapter, 11, uh, in chapter 12, after 11 chapters of, of, of outlining the beauty of God's story of redemption, the gospel, in verse, chapter 12 and verse 1, he, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, therefore, because of everything that God has done and, and, and has revealed to us, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his death in our place, means that there's no more need to bring animals to the temple. One, because the Spirit dwells within us. Our bodies are temples where God is. But Paul, using this imagery, says, now we present our lives as a living sacrifice to God because of all that he's done. And one of the ways that we do this is by the renewal of our mind in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, it's letting the nature, the work, and the presence of God reform us and shape us so that all aspects of our lives are in line with who he is. Paul is saying God has brought us back to himself through Christ. Now walk in that newness of life. Our worship is a response to what God has done, is doing and has promised to do. In our discipleship groups, we have uh, been going through the book of Galatians, and, and most of us just went through Chapter 5, where it talks about the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. That, that when we walk in the Spirit, as we are walking, as we are meditating on God's Word, as we are worshiping, pouring out our hearts toward God, the Spirit's fruit is born in us. Love, joy, peace, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, goodness. In other words, we radiate God's glory. We actually rightly reflect who we were made to be. 
And when we see worship in this way, we, we realize it isn't something that we turn off or on. Rather, it's an invitation to become more aware of, and of who or what we are worshiping. As we meditate on who God is and what he's done, our individual lives, we, we get to take stock. Where, where is my attention being pulled off of Christ? Friends, often people come and say, I'm not being fed. Are, are you investing, are you communing with the Lord in any way? No one is just going to eat just today and not for the rest of the week, right? But we often treat service like that. I, 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 I'm not worshiping in any meaningful way. Why do I, I feel empty? Because you're not pursuing Christ. Because you're not letting him fill you. So the first thing, it is an individual work, but it's a corporate one as well. And the two go together. This, invita- this psalm is an invitation to join God's people in worship. And one way we think about that is the two aspects of the church. We say that, that there are two contexts, we, that we are the people scattered by God and then gathered by God. And as individuals, we're invited to walk with Jesus, knowing his nearness, his power, his grace. But as we gather then, we are invited to share that with one another in worship. And here's the purpose. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who's promised is faithful. And let us consider, check this out, how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as, the days, as you see the day drawing near. We live our scattered lives in the midst of a world that's still broken. And we are forgetful people. We quickly turn back to idols like the Israels with a calf. We may not build statues, but our hearts are easily turned away and we forget. Like the little girl asking her parents, do you still love me? The goal of the gathering then is to stir up one another and encourage one another even as we see the day of God's return and judgment coming. We remind each other of the gospel. This is why David and God's people commend the work of the Lord to one another. Even as we see in verses 10 and to 13, they're going to say praises to one another. Even in verse 5, one generation shall commend your ways, works to another. Why? It's because they're reminding each other of their story, who God is, what God has done. So we gather not just as a collection of people, but those called by God into this family to, to encourage one another. We gather in order to remember our story, to encourage one another when life is hard, when doubts creep in, when, when to spur one another to press on, holding fast to the promises of God. One person says it like this, we don't gather to worship. In Christ, we, as continuous worshipers, we gather together in worship with our brothers and sisters. We gather in the midst of the world's pressures under the hopeful warning of Christ's return, encouraging one another and building one another up in the presence of God's Spirit by immersing us ourselves in God's Word, by singing and proclaiming the gospel. The fruit of the gathering is not just a strong individual but a strong church united in faith. That's what Mike Cosper says. Worship is both individual and corporate. It's two sides of the same coin. 
The gathering is meant to strengthen and to, to send us out to live in the power and enjoyment of the gospel. We are meant to be brought together to, to remind ourselves of the story, to encourage, and then as we are sent out to go as light and salt in the world. As we gather, we, we, we are to showcase, what, even as Tom read that, that from Ephesians, that God has brought together people that don't normally get together. He has made us a family. Those who did were not biological family. The gathering prepares us to be scattered into our places of work, our schools, our relationships, our neighborhoods. And the life of scattered worship, as we, as we grow in the Lord individually, as we bring our lives back into the gathering, we encourage one another with what the Lord has been showing us on a weekly basis. We bring in the ways that God has been growing us. We bring in our hurts and our suffering. We bring in our authentic selves. We bring in our persistent faith, faith even in the midst of doubt and difficulty. In other words, we share our lives with one another. And as we do, we speak the word of God to one another, encouraging and building one another up. This rhythm of scattering and gathering when anchored in the gospel forms us as God's people. So together, we're not just built up as individuals, we're actually built up together. And as we are, we display the grace, the mercy, the goodness, the power, and the glory of God. As Israel would have sang this psalm together, they're proclaiming their story. They're reminding one another even when their faith is faltering. And as they do, in, even in defiant faith, saying, this is who our God is. And friends, that's what we're hoping to do each, each week as we gather. The rhythms of our service are meant to remind us of God's story, to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us to spur us on, and then to send us out into the world in the power of the Spirit, armed with God's word and his, and his nearness and his promises. And then as we go out and then we come back in and this rhythm shapes us and forms us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to call us to... Secure us. We thank you that you are faithful even when we are not. Lord, when we have turned away from worshiping you and turned to things that do not satisfy, Lord, I thank you for the grace of Christ, your grace that is most shown in Christ. I pray that you would help us to see him afresh. He would kindle our hearts of longing towards you. And that together that you would build us up as your people in our own personal lives as we go and then as, a, as one church united in Christ together. In Christ's name, amen.